I heard about a man who made an appointment to see a psychiatrist. He sat down, told the doctor he thought he might have an inferiority complex. The doctor looked at him and said, an inferiority complex? He said, yes, I think I have that. The doctor proceeded to evaluate him, and after this session had ended, the psychiatrist said, Sir, I am so sorry. It's not a complex. You are inferior. <laughs> and that's how some people feel. Some people struggle with intense feelings of inferior self-esteem and self-value. Don't misunderstand this. This isn't a comment on self-love. Scripture never commands us to love ourselves. Actually, that's the problem. Most people love themselves too much. This is about perspective. This is about how we see ourselves. This is about self-assessment. This is about someone's self-image. It is extremely important that we have an accurate and biblical self-image, and that means two distinct things. One, it means we don't think more of ourselves than we should. We don't think more of ourselves than we should. That's called pride. And Romans 12 verse 3 cautions us against having an overinflated perspective on ourselves. Romans 12 verse 3 reads, For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That reminds me of the famous fighter Muhammad Ali in his prime on a flight about to taxi down the runway. The flight attendant said to him, Mr. Ali, we are so, so excited to have you on board this flight, but would you please fasten your seatbelt? She moved down the aisle and Muhammad Ali ignored that request. She returned and said, please, Mr. Ali, uh, we're about ready to depart. Please fasten your seatbelt. Once more, he ignored those instructions. She returned and she was frustrated this time and said, Mr. Ali, you don't understand. The captain cannot receive permission to commence this flight until all of us have fastened our seatbelts. The champ was still resistant. And he said, I don't need no seatbelt. I'm Superman. And Superman don't need no seatbelt. That flight attendant bent down and said to him, No, Mr. Ali, you're mistaken. Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> His self-assessment was more than it should have been. Second, a biblical self-image means we don't think less of ourselves than we should. We don't think less of ourselves than we should. Don't miss this. Thinking less of ourselves than we should, is a counterfeit, counterfeit sense of humility. In one sense, feeling inferior or low self-esteem, as some would label this emotion, is the opposite from pride. But in another sense, feeling inferior and low self-esteem is pride in another form. Some people pretend to have low self-esteem primarily to bring attention to themselves. And that's just another manifestation of pride. Being proud and thinking more of ourselves than we should is probably more common than thinking less of ourselves than we should, but both are unacceptable perspectives on ourselves. There are dozens of different recognizable phobias. Phobias are defined as an irrational and excessive fears. 
irrational and excessive fears. There's glossophobia, a fear of public speaking. That is probably the most common phobia. There's claustrophobia, a fear of small and enclosed spaces. I am claustrophobic to some degree. There's arachnophobia, a fear of spiders. There's chorobophobia, a fear of clowns, and that is a thing. Some people are terrified of clowns, and on and on. I just came across a unique phobia that illustrates maximum pride. It's called me-phobia. Capital E, M, capital E, me-phobia. And this me-phobia is defined as the fear of me becoming so awesome that the human race can't handle it and everyone dies. That's me-phobia. And that's probably printed on some teenager's t-shirt. Most inferior feelings result from comparison games. Social media, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok have all contributed to these comparison games. We compare our anatomical characteristics to societal expectations that are sometimes impossible to meet. That's the reason anorexia has been epidemic among teenage girls. That's also the reason I quit on the idea of washboard abs. It used to be pinch an inch and now it's grab a slab. I, um, I also now feel that hair is highly overrated. It's, it isn't necessary. We compare our academic credentials to someone else's. We compare our financial status to someone else's. We compare our children to someone else's children. I read a bumper sticker recently where some parent said, my honor student went to college, graduated summa cum laude, got a PhD, invented a next generation plasma weapon, and just incinerated your kid. That's brutal. These are the comparison games. We need to stop comparison games and start seeing ourselves as God sees us. Let me mention four facts that can help us do that. One, understand that numerous biblical characters felt inferior. Numerous biblical characters felt inferior. Jeremiah was so inarticulate and immature in his speech, he felt he came across as childish. Amos was a professional sheep breeder and fig picker. Both were legitimate professions, but he lamented that he wasn't a prophet or the son of a prophet. Elijah considered himself a total failure to the degree he was suicidal. The classic biblical example, though, of someone who suffered from an inferiority complex was Moses. Moses. Moses had been shepherding on the backside of the desert, and he encountered a bush that burned, but the fire didn't consume the bush. God spoke to Moses through that burning bush and instructed him to emancipate his people, meaning to free his people from bondage, four centuries of bondage as slaves in Egypt. Notice Exodus 3 verse 9, God said to Moses, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Verse 10, Come now therefore, and I will send you, Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you, Moses, may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
Moses had forgotten that God plus one equals a majority. So he resisted that idea. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? After receiving these instructions from God through the means of this burning bush, Moses responded and said, me, go to Pharaoh. You, you cannot be serious. God, not me. You've got the wrong Hebrew here. Think through this. Moses had been raised in Pharaoh's household as his son. Moses had been educated in Egypt's finest schools. Moses commanded servants and probably government employees. Moses had a substantial expense account. Because of his intimate personal relation to Pharaoh, Moses had immediate access to all parts and departments of the Egyptian empire. But in spite of all those advantages, Moses had deceived himself into feeling inferior. The craziest part is, the consensus among biblical historians and commentators is that Moses was probably an NBL. An NBL, that acronym, means a natural born leader. That was Moses. In all three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, Moses is considered iconic. As an example, Moses is mentioned in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament character. That's absolute craziness that Moses felt so inadequate and so inferior, but he did. So feeling inferior is not an isolated emotion. Probably most people have felt that at some point in time. Fact number two, understand that our self-image should be derived from who we are and what we have in Christ. Understand our self-image should be derived from who we are and what we have in Christ. Galatians 3 verse 27 reads, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The baptism mentioned in that verse isn't water baptism. It is spirit baptism. Most people aren't aware. There are seven different biblical baptisms mentioned in scripture. Four of them are dry baptisms. This is one of those dry baptism. There is no water included in this baptism. It is spirit baptism. Dr. Lewis Barry Schaefer founded Dallas Theological Seminary, one of this nation's elite seminaries. Dr. Schaefer once said that 39 major spiritual transactions transpire at the precise moment of someone's salvation. Transactions such as justification, redemption, reconciliation, imputation, adoption, and on and on and on. And one of those not so often mentioned transactions is called Holy Spirit Baptism. Holy Spirit Baptism is defined as an imperceptible, imperceptible meaning undetectable, spiritual operation that is transacted once at someone's salvation, not as our Pentecostal friends believe, 
after someone's salvation. It is transacted once at someone's salvation and in a spiritual sense results in that person being baptized or immersed into Christ. Spirit baptism is mentioned 11 times in the New Testament and it is unrepeatable, it is irreversible, it is non-emotionable, it is non-experiential, and it is permanent. That's the reason 164 times the New Testament reads that we as Christians are in Christ. The language varies some. Sometimes it reads we're in the Son, or in the Beloved, or in Christ Jesus. But that verbiage describes our spiritual position after salvation. We are in Christ. And don't miss this. Once we are in Christ as a Christian, we continue to be in Christ and can never at another point in time not be in Christ again. So our self-image and self-value should reflect that spiritual position. Just some of the benefits of being in Christ are we are made God's children and are heirs of all that God has. We are now God's permanent possession, and we cannot be repossessed. We are blessed with all, not some, we are blessed with all spiritual blessings. We are now considered citizens of heaven. That's the reason as Christians, we are as sure of heaven as if we were already there, because our citizenship is. We are called saints. That word saint means someone that has been set apart. And we are set apart where? In Christ. So we're saints. I'm Saint Larry, Saint Nick, Saint Hopi. I mean, we're saints. And we don't have to wait on the Pope to canonize us. That's just a partial listing. But the Christian spiritual resume resulting from his position in Christ is too extensive and too impressive to warrant an inferiority complex. But the non-Christian is a different matter. He's not in Christ. So to attempt to find self-esteem in the non-Christian person is limited at best and is deceiving at worst. It is true, all people, all members of the homo sapien species, all people have some dignified self-value because as humans we were all created in the image of God. In the Latin language, we were created imago Dei. That's one reason Abortion should be classified as a hate crime against God himself because we were created in his image. This is a current hot-button issue. And I am responsible as a spiritual shepherd to this congregation to speak to culture. So I'm going to pull over and park here for just a moment. Proverbs 6, verse 16. These six things the Lord hates. The Lord hates Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Verse 17, the first thing God hates is a proud look. The second thing God hates is a lying tongue. And notice the third thing God God hates is hands that shed innocent blood. That phrase, hands that shed innocent blood, describes abortion and describes the doctors that perform an abortion because no one is more innocent than the unborn. Understand something. Abortion isn't a political issue. It is a moral issue. It is a biblical issue that because of the modern feminist movement has been dragged into the political discourse. Some of us are aware that this past Sunday morning, 
Some women visited Joel Osteen's church in Houston. Um, I'm surprised this happened at Lakewood Church because Joel preaches the positive confession gospel and he doesn't speak against societal sins. He refuses to use the word sin in his sermons and in his books. He doesn't consider himself an actual pastor, but a preacher hyphen life coach. And I guess that's what he is. So I'm surprised it was there, but the church was chosen probably because of its sheer size and because of its massive television audience. At the beginning of the service, uh, the sermon, at the beginning, as Joel was about to preach, those women, three of them, stripped down to their underclothes. This is in church stood up in the congregation in their underclothes, screamed some obscenities, and repeated the standard, tired, old pro-abortion mantra, my body, my choice. My body, my choice. Translated as, what makes you fanatical Christians think you can tell me what to do with my uterus? That's the essence of that argument. Other than the protest itself, which couldn't have been more inappropriate, the problem is these women are deceived. The unborn child isn't the mother's body. The pregnant mother and the unborn child represent separate bodies. The pregnant mother and the unborn child represent separate people. Consider these actual scientific facts. All mothers are female. Now I understand that is a point of contention now. <laughs> Let me be very specific. Men cannot get pregnant. Okay? Just so you know. Amen. Oh, yeah. Amen to that. All mothers are female. About half the children born to those female mothers, though, are male. How can one body be both fully male and fully female? The mother and child often have different blood types. How is that possible unless there are separate bodies? The child can sometimes be a different race from the mother. How is that possible unless there are separate bodies? Each cell in the mother's body has a set of chromosomal characteristics that is entirely distinct from each cell in the unborn child's body. When the unborn child anchors itself to the uterine wall, there is a concerted attack from the mother's white blood cells to defeat him, forcing him to defend himself because the mother's immune system recognizes that embryonic child as a non-self, as someone else. Therefore, it is not a part of the mother's body. The unborn child can die without the mother dying. And that is so unfortunate. It happens so often. Miscarriages, etc. And even through the means of abortion. The mother can die without the unborn child dying, as the unborn child can sometimes be rescued contingent on the age of the fetus. The unborn child actually initiates the process that culminates in its leaving the mother's body. The unborn child initiates that process. There is no other body organ in the mother that demonstrating that the child that does that, that demonstrating that the child is separate from the mother. This argument, my body, my choice, is a completely bogus, fraudulent argument. It's interesting, this is trivia, that these pro-choice, 
pro-abortion people are often pro-mask mandate people. What happened to my body, my choice? In a technical sense, though, a Christian can never argue my body, my choice, because our bodies aren't ours. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20 read that our bodies are the habitation of the Holy Spirit, and our bodies are not our own. It is true, all people have some dignified self-value because as humans, we were all created inside our mothers in the image of God. And that divine creative act grants all people some dignified self-value. But sin has devalued us. Sin has depreciated our self-esteem. Our true self-value can only be restored when we receive salvation and through the means of spirit baptism are then positioned into Christ. Understand something. Nobody is a nobody in Christ. One theologian said that next to the triune Godhead, the Christian is the hottest commodity in the universe. That's because we're in Christ. As a Christian, there's no reason to feel inferior, no matter how inadequate we feel compared to others. I wasn't, I wasn't an attractive child. Um, in grade school, my parents, I'd never been to a barber. Uh, my, my dad had some clippers, and he just buzzed my head. Um, from the, I think it was preparing me for this. But... <laughs> but I have larger than normal ears, and if you don't have any hair, they like stick out. And I remember in grade school, children would uh, tease me and call me Dumbo. Remember the Disney character Dumbo? And I was Dumbo the miniature elephant, I guess. And uh, so uh, I wasn't attractive. I wasn't attractive as an adolescence. In high school, a professional photographer told me, this isn't hyperbole, this isn't ministerial exaggeration. He actually said I was the most non-photogenic person he had ever had in his studio. <laughs> that was so encouraging. <laughs> and then someone else said I resembled the bumper sticker. Being ugly is okay, but you're overdoing it. <laughs> But that's all okay. It doesn't bother me. Because those unfortunate facial characteristics that have been assigned to me through my ancestors don't define who I am. The academic degrees I have earned through blood, sweat, and tears because I'm just not that smart don't define who I am. The modest career success I've experienced doesn't define who I am. I am now defined according to who I am and what I have in Christ. And that cannot change. No matter what happens to us, remember our default position is that we are in Christ. And there's no reason to feel inferior. Fact number three. Understand God defines success differently than man does. God defines success differently than man does. Once more, we find ourselves into comparison games, comparing ourselves to how culture defines success. Culture celebrates celebrities in music, movies, entertainment, professional sports, politics, social media influencers, the rich and famous, and on and on. God defines success different from culture. The definition God uses exists in the form of a mathematical function. Notice the definition. Success, according to God, is the ratio of gifts used 
compared to gifts received. The ratio of gifts used compared to gifts received. And this is, in mathematical language, that simple function. According to this mathematical function, success is gifts, gifts used divided by gifts received. Meaning success is the ratio of gifts used compared to gifts received. Now understand that all that we are and all that we have are gifts on loan to us from God. James 1 verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, meaning heaven, and comes down from the Father, God the Father. Don't misunderstand this. I'm using the word gifts in a generic sense. Don't miss that. I'm using the word gifts in this equation or mathematical function in a generic sense. That word includes spiritual gifts, but that word isn't limited to spiritual gifts. This word gifts means so much more than spiritual gifts. I'm using gifts as a comprehensive word that includes all that we have. All that we have are genetic inherited abilities, from fast twitch muscle to perfect pitch to hand-eye coordination. Gifts include our learned skill set, from being proficient on a computer to operating earth-moving equipment to, to negotiating a business deal. Gifts do include our spiritual gift combinations. Our gifts also, though, include our health, our mental fitness, our personalities, our time, our time is a gift from God, our education, our social economic status, our possessions, all that we are and all that we have are gifts from God on loan to us. And God expects us to use all those gifts we have received from Him for Him. Success equals the ratio of gifts used compared to gifts received. Again, one more time. Success is the ratio of gifts used compared to gifts received. The higher percentage of those gifts used to those gifts received, then the more successful that person is according to God. I didn't create this concept. That mathematical function defining success comes from the parable of the talents. In Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, and I wish we had more time to be able to expose that entire parable, but we don't. That parable describes a master. Before going away on a journey, he entrusted to his three servants some of his financial resources. To one servant he gave five talents, to a second servant he gave two talents, and to a third servant he gave one talent. That word talent, as used in this parable, is not the same as how we use our word talent. Our word talent is often a reference to our genetically inherited abilities. That's not the same. Ancient talents represented different weights of precious metal that had a corresponding monetary value. Ancient talents represented different weights of different precious metals that had a corresponding different monetary value. As an example, a talent of gold that weighed so much had a monetary value attached to it. It was worth so much. A talent of silver that weighed the same as the talent of gold had another and lesser monetary value than gold because silver is less valuable than gold and on and on and on. Now notice one man received five talents. We don't know what precious metal those talents consisted of, but we do know 
that those talents had serious financial value. Notice that the man that received five talents doubled his monies. He used all five talents to earn five more talents, equaling ten total talents. So his ratio of gifts used to gifts received was 100%. Notice the man that received two talents also doubled his monies. He used both his talents to earn two more talents, equaling four total talents. So his ratio of gifts used to gifts received was also 100%. That's the reason this master returned from his journey, and he commended those men. He said to them, well done, good and faithful servant. He commended them because both were faithful to use all the resources each one of them had received from this master. And that's the biblical definition to success. I should add that phrase from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant, is the same exact commendation we should want to hear from Jesus ourselves the moment we step into heaven. That's what I want to hear. This parable is most often taught in the context of money management, and it should be. But the bigger idea of this parable is applicable to all facets of someone's existence. God expects from us, and there are no exceptions to this, God expects from us a significant percentage of the gifts that we use compared to the gifts we have received. It's unfortunate that this third servant that received one talent decided not to use that talent. He buried that single talent in the ground so that his ratio of gifts used to gifts received was a zero. Because that servant's one talent was unused, the master was upset, and the master retrieved that talent from him and gave it to the servant that had ten talents. That was an ancient example of the phrase, use it or lose it. If that servant had just used that single talent he had received, his master would have also commended him, just as he did the other servants. Because the question isn't how much we have received from God. We all receive different amounts of abilities and resources. It doesn't matter how much we have received from God. The question is how much of what we have received from Him are we using for Him? Someone might have received extraordinary abilities and resources. That's not me. Some, though, have received extraordinary abilities and resources. Someone else might have received more modest abilities and resources. That's probably most of us. And someone else might have received just minimal abilities and resources, but that's not the point. The point is what percentage of those abilities and resources that we have received from God are we using? God evaluates us and rewards us at the judgment seat in heaven according to that ratio. Gifts used compared to gifts received. Remember this principle if you forget everything else I said. Remember this. God doesn't use just the best, but just our best. God doesn't use just the best, but just our best. If God limited himself to using just the best that there is, then just a few of us could be used. And most of us would go unused. But that's not how it is. God sometimes does use the best that's out there. He uses some amazing people that have extraordinary gifts and abilities. But most often, though, he uses the less than the best 
Because that's what most of us are. God can use those of us that are less than the best if we would just give him our best. Don't misunderstand. We should do our best to be the best we can be. We should do our best to maximize on our God-given potential. But according to this mathematical function, gifts used compared to gifts received, no one has to be the proverbial best there is in order to be successful from God's perspective. That's the reason some unknown saints down here are projected to be big names up there. Because those people have used their minimal gifts to their maximum potential. I use this example first service, except for our guest this morning. Most people recognize Taylor Farrar. Taylor is Bill and Barbara's Farrar third child. She sits at the name tag table, and she has a semi-celebrity status in this congregation. Uh, this is not a ministerial exaggeration. It would require literally the next 30 minutes to even abbreviate Taylor's lifelong, from birth, congenital medical problems and disabilities. She has endured so much more than 99.9% of us. This is just a recent example of all that Taylor has suffered. In 2019, she was diagnosed with a generalized seizure disorder. She was having numerous seizures. This is what she was diagnosed, and now she takes medication for that problem and will continue to do that. Six months after that, she was admitted to Carson Tahoe ICU. She was suffering from DKA, diabetes, ketoacidosis. She is a diabetic. She, for years, has been on an electronic pump that monitors her blood sugar and insulin uh, 24-7. Uh, diabetes, ketoacidosis is a life-threatening condition and it was a result of a bladder infection. If I remember, she entered the hospital, her blood sugar was over 800. That's near fatal numbers. She also started experiencing, at that time, severe, severe back pain. Soon after that, she had a foot surgery to treat an ongoing infection. Soon after that, she was admitted to ICU uh, to treat another bout of diabetes, ketoacidosis. She was also diagnosed with acute urinary retention. She also, at that time, lost feeling in both feet and could no longer walk on her own. Some months after that, she was once more admitted to ICU to treat more diabetes ketoacidosis. Soon after that, she was no longer able to sit or stand due to severe, severe back pain. She was only able to lay on her right side. That is the only position she could put her body in where she received any relief from the pain. Doctors at Sierra Neurosurgery determined she had severe spinal problems, cyst-containing spinal fluid, a dysmorphic sacrum, significant scoliosis, a bulging disc, and several spinal canal stenosis. I've suffered from that. I can relate. In addition, she suffered from severe osteoporosis. None of the surgeons in northern Nevada would touch her. All of them said she, her situation is above our pay grade. We, we, we can't do that. So she was for, referred to UCSF Medical Center for extensive testing and probable surgery. The primary neurosurgeon, um, then was Dr. Chow, head of neurology at UCSF, 
and he is renowned um, addressing these sorts of incredible situations. Uh, and um, across the United States, he actually gives seminars to other neurosurgeons how to do these things. Um, and he had to make some major adjustments in the proposed operation because of the severity of her condition. Um, on June 19, interesting date, June 19, 2020, she was in surgery, a team of doctors, neurosurgeons, and others, for 17 and a half hours. Had she not had that surgery, she would not be here today. This is the x-ray of her spine before surgery. Now, if you've ever seen an x-ray of your spine, and I've seen multiple ones of mine, look at that thoracic region and the lower lumbar region. It's just a twisted mess, a mangled mess at the bottom. Uh, it, that's her spinal column. I mean, it's just twisted and mangled. Like, how do, you, how do you survive with that? And she wasn't. That's the before picture. After that surgery, this is the x-ray after that surgery. Say what you want. That's amazing. That is amazing. Um, Taylor spent 10 days at UCSF. She was then transferred to St. Francis Rehab Hospital in San Francisco for two weeks of therapy four times per day. This is a picture of Taylor and some of her friends. Wherever Taylor goes, she makes friends. And uh, the gentleman in the middle at the top, that's Dr. Card. He is a uh, podiatrist. He is a phenomenal doctor. I've been to him, so he's hoping numbers of us have been to him. He was instrumental in pushing this thing to find a solution to her problem. Uh, the gentleman on the right surrounding her are the Ball Brothers. They're a gospel singing group. Um, on the bottom are different physical therapists uh, and on and on. And uh, Taylor is so much better, so much better after that marathon surgery, but she still has ongoing medical issues. But that hasn't stopped her for one minute from using all that God has given her. She makes the name tags. Now that's sort of gotten to be overwhelming um, because Shauna and Abigail Sargis are helping her make name caps because she doesn't do standard, just put your name. She likes to decorate them. She's, you know, artistic. So she does that and she distributes them before each service. And I would suggest to you, get a name tag, if for no other reason, just to make her happy. I think that would be good. Do that. Each Sunday morning, she texts out Bible verses to more than 300 people and a number of them pastors. I receive one. She sent out this weekend Father's Day text to all the dads, hundreds of them, in her contacts. I receive one. She helps in pre-kindergarten and kindergarten Sunday school class. She creates paintings and gives them to people to encourage them. This is an example of one of her paintings. This is hanging in our office. This is some of the work that Taylor does. And she gives these paintings to people that she wants to encourage and people she appreciates. All of her doctors have received these. And numerous doctors, if you walk into their office, besides their academic credentials and graduation certificates and licensing and all that, got one of these uh, on the wall. That's how impressive uh, these men are and women are with Taylor. Um, each week, she sends out encouraging voice messages to relatives and friends. She volunteers in vacation Bible school. And she does other miscellaneous things. And no one hates missing church more than Taylor. If she misses church because of her health, she cries. She's upset. Tell the, 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 the internet's not enough. She wants to be here. She wants to interact with people. No one misses, hates missing church more than Taylor. No one, and that includes me. Now, she isn't perfect, so don't misunderstand. An example of that during VBS, the children participate in a penny parade. It's a contest between the boys and the girls. 
to see who puts the most pennies in the penny bucket. The pennies all go to missions. And this summer the pennies are going to Kenya Evangelical Missions, which is a phenomenal organization planning churches uh, and educating pastors in Kenya. Now, the problem is the girls most always win because the system is rigged. (laughs) Because Taylor saves pennies for 12 months so she can stuff the girl's penny bucket at the last day of VBS. I question the ethics of that, okay? It doesn't seem fair. The boys' morale's at the bottom. I mean, these guys are devastated, okay? You would think one of them have enough sense. Why can't I do what she does? But no, they don't get it. So, but it's Taylor, so we're all good with it. It's okay. Now, there are probably some uninformed and or confused people that might perceive Taylor to be inferior in some sense because there are some things she cannot do, such as she cannot legally operate a motorized vehicle in this state. She cannot pass the Nevada State Bar Exam. She cannot compete for a position on the U.S. Olympic women's basketball team. She cannot be accepted into the genius organization called Mensa. It is true there are some things she cannot do that others of us can do. But she's not inferior because she's using as much of all that God gave her as she possibly can. In her case, this ratio of gifts used compared to gifts received is almost 100%. That's true success. That's what matters to God. And that, men and women, puts most of us to shame. I have wasted gifts. I have wasted opportunities. And I am confident she's going to be ahead of me in line to receive rewards in heaven. Since the 60s, football coaches from high school to college to the pros, coaches have told their teams to leave it all on the field. That phrase, leave it all on the field, means to give the game an all-out 100% effort so that at the end of the game, there's nothing more left to give. That's what God requires from us. God doesn't just use the best, but just our best. If we're doing that, then it is inexcusable to see ourselves as being inferior. And fact number four, understand that our ambition should be to please God and not man. Our ambition should be to please God and not man. Attempting to please man can actually aggravate someone's inferiority complex. Galatians 1 verse 10. Paul said, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9. Paul said this, Therefore we make it our aim. This is our goal. This is our objective. We make it our aim, whether present, present means if we're still alive, present in our bodies, and present here on this earth as we all are this morning, whether present or absent, absent meaning if we're dead, meaning if we're absent from our bodies, and in heaven, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Paul said, if we're here, or if we're there, We are to do all that we do in an attempt to please God. Most people are concerned about pleasing people. People want people to like them. That's a normal thing. 
That's ultimately an exercise in futility because we cannot please everyone. I've tried. It's impossible. Paul resisted that urge to please people and insisted that he existed to please God. Some time ago, a just retired pastor visited one of our services. I greeted him before the service and conversed with him after the service. He filled out a guest card. We give our guests a card to fill out. Just asking for some basic information. We don't put them on an email list or a database list or, or send, you know, something like that. We don't do that. Just want some basic information primarily to know how they found out about us, who invited them or how it happened, internet, whatever. And uh, he filled out a guest card, uh, gave it to me. I dropped that card into my attache case and then completely forgot it was there until sometime after that, maybe a month or so. And I was rummaging around in my attache case. My attache case is sort of like a black hole. I can't find anything. And uh, I found it, and I noticed he added some personal comments to the card. At the top of the card, it reads, all about you, because we want to find some basic information about our guests. And he wrote next to all about you, he wrote, really? I thought it was supposed to be all about him. Well, I guess he assumed I had the IQ of plant life and was a theological idiot because he assumed that I didn't know that. Yes, I know that it's all about him, but we also know that he is interested in all about us. Why else would he in Luke 12 verse 7 bother to number, not count, number the hairs on our head? No, actually for some of us that takes no time at all. But that's... It demonstrates his personal interest in us. And then he described, in the margin of the card, he described my presentation, the sermon, as thoroughly biblical. And that was something positive, and I appreciated that. But then he continued to offer a critique. And he mentioned that I had used, quote, too many illustrations. I had used, in the sermon, too many illustrations. And my first reaction to that was a Gary Coleman response. What you talking about, Willis? That was my first reaction. <laughs> that critique promoted numerous questions, such as, how is an illustration defined? Is a single sentence quotation an illustration? Or is it a multi-paragraph narrative? Does a biblical narrative count as an illustration? Are statistics illustrations? Is a joke illustration qualified? Probably none of mine. Um, and then how many illustrations are too many? Are three illustrations permissible? One illustration to match each member of the triune Godhead? Or is seven permissible uh, since seven illustration matches seven, the biblical number for completeness? Uh, so how many is acceptable? And then who has the authority to determine how many illustrations are too many? Is there a biblical chapter and verse that comments on that? Or is this guest pastor a card-carrying member of the sermon illustration Gestapo? I mean, which is it? So after reading this card and his comments, I was slightly perturbed. Okay, I was spiritually ticked off. I have a degree in undergraduate degree in engineering, most of which I have forgotten, but I still have an analytical mind. So I chose a more scientific approach to demonstrate that this man didn't have a clue. My sermons are all prepared and printed in word-for-word -word manuscript form. Um, 
without these notes, <laughs> I'm in trouble. Don't you dare, dare think about confiscating these notes <laughs> before a sermon. I will have a cardiac arrest. So I thought I would highlight all the sentences, a yellow highlighter, all the sentences in that manuscript that could be considered illustrative. And then count the total number of words in those illustrative sentences to the total number of words in the entire manuscript. And from that exercise, determine the actual precise percentage of content that was considered illustration. And then using that empirical evidence, demonstrate to this doofus that his charge was a gross misrepresentation and he was slanderous. That was my initial thinking. But I didn't do that. I calmed down. I canceled that impromptu pity party and admitted that sometimes I learn more from critics than from friends and that I should probably evaluate that criticism and I did I would suggest this sermon is probably falls into that category because of my extensive illustrations on Taylor and then this but that incident reminded me that I don't preach a sermon to please a congregation I don't preach a sermon to please a particular congregant I don't preach a sermon to please an elder board or please a denomination. And I don't preach to please or impress another pastor, no matter who that man is. I perform for an audience of one, and he is Yahweh, the sovereign God of this universe. And people, no matter what we do, from preaching a sermon as I do, to plumbing a house, to putting away the dishes after a meal, to putting together a business plan to present to a loan officer at the bank, no matter what we do, if we do it from a pure heart and a whole heart in the name of Jesus and it causes God to smile because he's pleased, then that's all that matters. And we have no right or reason after that to feel inferior. Let's bow our heads. Father, um, I hope this has been helpful. I've done my best. I just, and I offered it up to you as a sacrifice before I even started. And I hope you've been pleased. Because I'm not here to please man. I'm here to please you. And I desperately, when I see you, want to hear those words, well done. Good and faithful servant. I'm confident my father heard those words the moment he met Jesus. He wasn't a man of extraordinary abilities, but he used up everything that you gave him. And he was a success according to your definition. And I'm so proud that he was my father. And father, I want to be the same. I'm average, I know that. I'm so ordinary, but it doesn't matter. I just want to use up everything you've given me. I want my ratio of gifts used compared to gifts received to be as close to 100% as possible. And my prayer is for everyone in this room that you would want the same. Because that's how we'll be evaluated in heaven and rewarded according to that. Thank you for your word. Please continue to use this in the hearts and lives 
of these people who have been so patient and gracious to listen. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.